2: I recently had the opportunity to go to the Whitney Biennial at the Whitney Museum. They gather together some of the most interesting artists, and they take up two or three floors of the Whitney with really interesting art. It's very good this year. It's mixed. There are some less than interesting things, but most of the installations are really provocative. There's this really stunning room of kind of words, and they're... Carved out of metal. I'm not explaining it well. Anyway, I, it's, I've never seen anything like it. It's absolutely breathtaking. And there are several truly breathtaking pieces. So if you're in New York, the Whitney Biennial, make sure you get out there to see it. From Luminary, this is the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. I'm Roxanne Gay, your favorite bad feminist. On the Roxanne Gay Agenda, I talk about something that's on my mind, and then I talk with someone interesting to find out what's on their mind. On this week's agenda, celebrity nonsense. Uh-oh. Uh-uh. As, <laughs>
0: <laughs> no! <laughs> <laughs> no.
3: As many
2: people know, during this year's Oscars, not much happened. But one of the interesting things that did happen is that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock for making fun of his wife's hair. In the moment, I was shocked. I think I cringed so much that my body folded in on itself. In the aftermath, though, I knew there were going to be days and days of discussion, but I cannot believe that it has been almost an entire week of people talking and talking and talking about something that was, in effect, an isolated incident. This sort of thing doesn't really happen that much. And I don't think that it is a particular harbinger of anything but what it was. And so I've been thinking a lot lately about the kinds of discourse that we turn to when the world is falling apart. And I think that's why we still care about Chris Rock and Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith. It's because we're in the middle of a pandemic that we thought was going to end but is surging once more. There's a war in Ukraine. There are all kinds of problems here in the United States from homelessness to the lack of universal health care to children going hungry, to falling apart schools, to infrastructure crumbling around us while the government continues to fund the police and the military at exorbitant and ever-increasing rates. And so, yes, once in a while, it's kind of great to just talk about celebrities who ultimately are going to be just fine no matter what happens. There's just not too much at stake. And sometimes I think we all need to have conversations where there is not too much at stake. Something else I like to turn to when the world gets too much is, of course, movies and television. And I am an 80s child. I was born in 1974. Pretty much all of the movies of the 80s were very formative to me. E.T., Star Wars, The Breakfast Club. (laughs) And there was something just so... They weren't wholesome, but they were interesting and they weren't demeaning to anyone. And that's why I am really thrilled to talk to someone I've always enjoyed talking to and thinking about, Ali Sheedy. She has been part of my viewing life since the 1980s. First, she was on TV shows like Hill Street Blues, and then she got ever-increasing roles like Bad Boys, Opposite Sean Penn, and then there were the huge hits like The Breakfast Club, Short Circuit, St. Elmo's Fire. She later went on to star in some wonderful independent films like My Favorite Movie probably top five, high art from 1998. Much more recently, like pretty much everyone else in showbiz, she's working on a streaming show on the serialized comedy Single Drunk Female, currently airing on Hulu. In it, she plays the mother of a young alcoholic who has come home to sober up and ends up crashing her mother's life. Allie, welcome to the Roxanne Gay Agenda. How are you today?
4: Thank you. I am good. I am very honored to be here. And Roxanne, I was born in 1962. Really? So you're going to slow down on 74? (laughs) I am going to slow down.
2: I am going to slow down then. (laughs) Well, my wife was born in uh, 1961, and she often teases me. And I don't feel like, I don't mind getting old, really. But sometimes, especially now, um, a young person will be like, I was born in... uh, 2000 and i just look at them like what go away get out of my face
4: right don't right, talk to me right, right well my son was born in 94 oh and um
3: <laughs> i, mean, you I know and
4: he seems but i keep forgetting he's actually 28 i keep thinking he's much younger than that but also i don't know if you have this experience i feel like there's a decade i'm missing absolutely not that i don't remember it but that i keep thinking i'm actually 49 oh yeah instead of 59 for some reason.
2: Sometimes I look around and I'm like, where did my 40s go? While at the same time also believing and knowing in my heart that these have been the best years of my life. But like, really, where did the time go? Yeah. So I had the opportunity. I was in Amherst, Massachusetts recently, and I had a huge gap of time between my first event and my next event. And they had Hulu on a TV in the room that they put me in for five hours. So I watched Single Drunk Female. The first season, which is really great. And I, that means something because I watch a lot of TV. Right. And what I really loved was that the character you play, Carol Fink, is not your typical maternal role. Right. She has a personality. She has more to her life than just motherhood. So tell us about Carol and what drew you to this role.
4: I love the writing, love the characters and this particular group it's almost entirely women working on this show. Nice. And they are people I always wanted to work with. And that character, there was only the pilot, so it was only the first, you know, couple scenes of Carol. But I felt like, oh, my God, there's something in me that I understand this character. So I was really, really happy that they wanted me to play her. And then I had the best time. I've never done a series before. I didn't know how it works. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know the process that you are filming, the script comes in for, we did the pilot. So then we get to Atlanta and here's the script for the next episode. So we had that and rehearsed it a little bit. And then while we were filming it, um, the script comes in for the next episode while we're still (laughs) filming the first one. I didn't know that was how it went. Mm -hmm. And we would do a table read via Zoom because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So we're never in the same room with another actor unless it was actually on set. And as the scripts were coming in, I was beginning to understand more about Carol because they were writing them off of what we were doing. So I was connecting dots that were coming from a writer and then from the writers and then also connecting dots within myself. Mm -hmm. It's just super interesting.
2: One of the things that intrigued me about the role of Carol is Carol doesn't actually take an active role in Samantha's sobriety. It's kind of Samantha's deal and... Carol has her own stuff going on. And, it, you know, and among those things, a, a new relationship and piecing back her life together after the death of Samantha's father. And so I just loved that part. And I was wondering how you thought about bringing that in, that Carol was clearly a loving mother, but she wasn't going to micromanage her daughter's sobriety.
4: So my daughter had her life happening in New York. My daughter played by Sophia, Sam. And blew her life up. Uh I have been handed a disaster. I just went through this very long illness with my husband who died about two years before the show starts. Sam was absent for all of that. We don't have a lot of backstory in there, but this is stuff that worked out with the creative people and with Sophia. She was not there. Uh She was drinking in New York. She abandoned me. And now all of a sudden I, I have my house um, figuring out my life i 'm trying to make friends, which i'm speaking as Carol, which is very difficult. This particular character is quite spiky and very judgmental, and people cross lines too quickly with me but i 'm trying to like get my setup happening and then she moves in i 'm suddenly being asked to make this kid kid she 's almost thirty the center of my life again when she just had vanished. Mm-hmm. There's a conflict going on the whole time because I don't want her to take up that much space. And at the same time, obviously, I have this pull where I'm thinking about her all the time. And so it's it's a back and forth. I almost resent how much I'm worried about her.
2: Yeah, and that comes through, that resentment. And yet that love, that wanting to take care, but at the same time also wanting to take care of... The Carol wanting to take care of herself. Yes. uh, Which I think is a a tension that many women, many people face as we get older. I know that in a recent Vanity Fair interview, you said that when you hit your 50s, you thought you were really going to miss acting. And I've heard that before from actors that there's this shelf, especially for women, where Mm -hmm. once the world no longer sees you as fuckable, you kind of fall off a cliff into playing mothers and then grandmothers and then whatever is past that. And so how does it feel to have such a great role in your 50s?
4: I'm so grateful, thrilled, excited, happy beyond belief. I didn't know if a role was going to come along. Everything had slowed way, 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 Mm -hmm. way down. Um, I had figured out other things that I also love to do with my life. And this just came in. And now that you have this role, do you want to
2: keep acting and finding more roles or hopefully more roles finding you?
4: Yes, more roles. I hope more roles find me. I hope that they pick up the season for a second season. I hope so, so too.
2: I hope so, too. Really
4: do. Right now, I would just love to continue with this character Mm -hmm. and this group of actors, these these people. So hopefully that's what's going to happen. And if it doesn't, then yes, I'm open to something else coming in that maybe, maybe that will happen more easily now because I was able to do the show.
0: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening why and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release. Presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn
0: more. Me Focus Features presents back to black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy skill. Like never before. As my daughter, as my Amy. Screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17, seventeen, ninety minute without parent. Only in theaters May seventeenth.
3: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this: there's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over fifteen million people by the end of this year
2: Now, I know that acting is not the entirety of what you do. In fact, you teach, you write, you edit. I'd love to talk about some of this, especially teaching, because anytime I've spoken with you about teaching, it just, you know, you light up. It's clearly a true passion of yours. So you're a professor in the theater department at City College of new york
4: yes but i teach film yeah i teach film yes. within the theater and speech yes. department yes, yes.
2: I, that, that i did yes know. yes and so yes. i would love to know how you think about teaching and what you love about it because every time i ask someone it's something different and so i'd love to know what you love about teaching
4: first of all i can't help it but i fall in love with the kids mm-hmm. every single term i like to have an informal way of communication with them because what we're doing in this class, there's something so vulnerable about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to switch it up to, to teach it online, which was a whole other thing. But basically, it's a class that I made up, close-up class. Mm-hmm. They can pick any scene they want from any film or television show. I just you know asked to please look for some good writing. Any character that they have ever wanted to play, it doesn't have to be close to self or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And then they memorize it, and another... Kid is off-camera for them, and we film their side of the scene in a close-up. Oh, wow. So they're in the scene. They have the role. They're on the set. They got it. This is not about auditioning, Mm -hmm. right? I got the part. What, What happens when I walk on a set and I own this role? How do I walk onto a set and feel that I'm grounded? I know what I'm doing. I know how to trust myself. How do we get them to move into that space? And mostly they actually end up teaching themselves because we film the close-up and then they watch it back and we talk about it. And then they can make whatever adjustments make sense to them. And then we do take two, talk about it, a class comes in and they can do as many takes as they want. I work with one student for an entire hour and 40 minutes each class. So they have all that time to figure out what they're doing and I wait until they're happy with what they see. How did you
2: come up with that idea? And what do you <laughs> want them to what do you want them to take from that exercise?
4: I want them to and this is what I say to them, I want them to understand that this is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. You know, they are theater majors, most of them. Some of them are have other majors, but they're theater kids. They love acting. Mm-hmm. And they, for the most part, pretty much know what they're doing. This is a shift over from the difference between the experience of acting and what you do on the stage to what you do on film, specifically when that camera is right there and it's your close-up. How do you freely navigate your way through this Mm -hmm. moment to moment to moment? I want them to, again, walk onto a set. They're all going to get their jobs. And feel like they have their stuff together, mm-hmm. you know, feel relaxed, feel that they can trust themselves, find their moments and don't feel dependent on a director who knows who the director would be or somebody else coming up and saying, oh, good job. I want them to understand how they work so that they can do that for themselves. And I came up with the idea. Um, I don't know. I was working <laughs> with um, <laughs> theater kids. um, When Beck went to college um, and I had extra time, (laughs) um, I went to LaGuardia High School. I got asked to come in and do some workshops with some kids there. And at the end of that year, the associate dean said, we'd love to have you around here. What would you like to work with the kids on? What do you feel like we don't really have in the curriculum? And it just came to me. I said, I'd like to work with them on a working their way through a close up.
2: I love that. (laughs) Because it's just that there's like the, yeah, it, like it's there's so much intimacy there when you think about close ups yes. and and really yes. thinking like what am I going to do when it's just me and the camera and a scene partner? Like what choices yes. am I going to make? You grew up here in New York City and in a very yes. literary family, really. Your mother, yes. Charlotte Sheedy, is a really well known literary agent. In fact, she's actually my wife's yes. agent. Books seem to be a big part of your life as well. Huge. So you published your first book when you were 12 years old. I did. Yes, I did. (laughs) So you have known greatness for quite some time. And then you published a book of poems.
4: So I was wondering, are you still writing? So the writing that I like to do, I did that essay with you, which was a specific thing. And thank you for editing it because it was just way too all over the place. So I don't want to use, I overuse the word triggered, but that particular thing at that particular time is just... A lot. Mm-hmm. The writing that I love to do is, um, you know why I'm going to be careful with this yes. I can, is I I edit. Mm-hmm. I do editing with writers on manuscripts that get sent to Charlotte and sometimes to other people also do some independent editing for publication. So there's submissions, there's revisions, there's this and that. The reason that I get careful about it is because most of the writers don't know it's me. Mm-hmm. When I had brought it up in an interview or a couple of times, I thought afterwards such a mistake because um, for years I've been doing this for 10 years. I don't want that to be the distraction. The point is, it's their work. I never wanted any of them to know it was me because nepotism, because you're an actress. What are you doing? Reading my work because of a lot of things that make sense to me. So the anonymity was really freeing. Mm -hmm. And then with some of the writers, after we had worked on several revisions, they actually did find out that it was me. Or once their book had been accepted by a publisher, um, then I could actually have free conversations with them. Mm -hmm. It depends on the writer. I'm not the only person doing this with Charlotte. Um, She's got a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But this kind of deconstruction of a manuscript, analyzing looking at character arc, working on the revisions with putting the different pieces back and forth together, asking questions, you know, why does such and such person do this? I'm not, I'm not following the through line here. I wouldn't say it's entirely technical, you know what I'm talking about. I do. But it's, I um, do. it's the putting it together. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of writing I love to do.
2: Yeah, I, you know, as a writer, and sometimes editor, I, I love the just, the before the putting it together. I love the free form, just generation of ideas and thoughts. And I always hope, I hope this is going to come out as well as I think it should. And then, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to, okay, now, like, how do I order this into something coherent? That, you know, I, I do it and I actually don't mind it. I enjoy it, but it doesn't come as easily to me. It's not the part I love as much as the first sort of rush of, inspiration right. so i love that's you know it's great to hear someone who's interested in like that part of putting it together and really thinking how are all these pieces going to work together
4: right and i get to read the most incredible stuff
2: yeah one thing i've learned is that there's no shortage of great writing in the world Mm-mm. and so many writers are just waiting for that combination of hard work and luck yes to strike them
4: Yes, I know there's a rhyme or reason to which manuscripts come my way, uh-huh. but I don't. I'm not in charge of the rhyme or reason of it. Uh-huh. So, I get a. It's a brand new book, uh-huh. right? Get to dive in, and it'll be on these incredible disparate to- topics. I mean, it'll just be there's one about this, and one about that, and some are nonfiction, and some are fiction. And I over the past ten years, I have learned so much about people and the world and history, just through reading the kind of work that that comes my way. So yes, I absolutely love it. And I'm trying to keep the focus on the writing and the writer. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But I know I can talk to you about it, because you know what I'm talking about.
2: I do. I do. Yeah. What are the different satisfactions between the work you do with books and acting?
4: One of the Early conversations that I actually had with Charlotte was when she had first sort of experimented with sending me something and that the thing that she sent me just it had entirely to do with um the structure was off. There is something about having spent my entire life taking apart scripts that lends itself to taking apart and analyzing a manuscript. It's all scenes, story consistency of character, um, interesting choices, dialogue that works, dialogue that's quite kind of sort of doesn't, a coherent story, an incoherent story. And by the way, I've been in a lot of movies with incoherent stories. It's not that sometimes you just do what you've got in front of you. But there's this um, way of having to pull it apart that lends itself to books, it feels it feels like an easy transition for me. I don't know why I love it so much, mm-hmm. but it's something I feel like I've been doing since I was, you know, a teenager.
2: Speaking of since you were a teenager, unlike a lot of artists, you seem to really embrace your earlier work. And that seems to be a point of connection to your students, many of whom were born in the 90s and, of course, now later. Yes. What is it like to have had such a long and storied career where you are an 80s icon and you're also still working in that same field today?
4: It's interesting. It's uh, I, I do embrace all the different parts of the career, including the ones that are just messy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel to me that it's been as long as it has been. Mm-hmm. 59 I think it's been what 40 over 40 years. It feels good. It feel, it feels like, you know, I I I got the chance to do this and I fell in love with it early and then I went through so many ups and downs and struggles. I really needed to develop myself. I needed to grow. Some of that happened in the public eye. Mm-hmm. And to get to where I am now at 59, I feel very grounded. I feel very comfortable when I walk on a set. Mm-hmm. I don't feel at the mercy of someone's opinion when I'm at work. I feel like all of that, all of it, the good and the bad, all of it gave me a kind of foundation (laughs) that I could not possibly have had at 19.
2: Yeah, of course. You know, the foundations that we have at 19 are so fragile and shifting. Right. And the older I get, the more I realize, or the more I find really, that I'm standing on more solid ground and I appreciate it very much. When you see younger actors and knowing sort of the things that you had to deal with coming up through the industry, do you ever have advice for them on how to navigate an industry that is incredibly fickle?
4: Yeah. So this is a lot of what these are the topics that come up in class Mm -hmm. with a younger actor, for instance, in the series I just did, if they want to ask me a question or talk about it, Fine, great, um, I'm all here for it. I asked a lot of questions when I was younger, too. But the most interesting questions are what we'll come up in class. Uh-huh. And listen, they're not, it's not even the, the questions you would think, how do you get an agent, how do you do this, how do you do that? Because they've already been asking that and they've already been exploring that. But more of it, is, it are things like, um, what do you do about all the equipment that's around that's so distracting? Uh-huh. All the people. That are around. A, a lot of the conversations I have are about how do you keep yourself safe mm. in the context of a set? Mm-hmm. It's very specific things. You know, somebody has to put a radio mic on your body.
2: Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's that drives talk me about crazy. That.
4: I hate that. So yeah. Much. But you know. Yes. Okay. But hey, when you go in for your wardrobe fitting, when I go in, I want to know. What we're we're filming that scene on which day ha, is it going to be hot? Is it going to be cold? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to be comfortable. And where's the radio pack going to go? Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things you you learn by trial and error. I learned by error. Um, <laughs> but I like to explain to them these kinds of technical things dealing with a hair and makeup department uh yes the wardrobe the sound the lights where you're looking with a camera how to handle direction that comes your way that might feel undermining it doesn't make sense to you how do you communicate with the director what do you do if you're supposed to be in love with an actor and you hate them i mean <laughs> these are the kinds of questions that come up and as far as the show business is concerned you know There's all this stuff written about how it's changed so much and all of this. Um, I don't know that the people have changed so much. I just think people are more nervous. Mm -hmm. Things that were said to me in my 20s would not. Well, they wouldn't be said to me now anyway, because I'm 59. But I don't think that the kind of situations that came up would come up necessarily for a 20 year old right now on a set.
2: That's interesting, because I always wonder, you know, we we talk a lot about the ways that the culture is shifting and, and in some ways for the better people are Mm -hmm. becoming more aware of what is and what is not acceptable. And I always wonder, is this really trickling over to certain industries that are notoriously problematic? And so it's interesting that you see at least some change, not in the people, but that their tolerance for trouble seems to be less. Where before they knew they wouldn't get in trouble, so they had a really high tolerance for it.
4: Right. And there would just be things that would be said and decisions that would be made without any sort of questioning of oneself Mm -hmm. or of why that was happening or should this be happening. There was none of that. There was no self-reflection. There was nothing. It was just the way that it was. And now I think there's just more a little bit of like treading and tiptoeing around and questioning what used to be this automatic assumptions, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good and bad. I'm just not fooled that people are that different. I just think that the structure has changed enough. There's more anxiety going on than there was before. So somebody (laughs) might be like forced into making a better choice. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? (laughs) I do. I do very much know what you
2: mean. (laughs) it's, it's, It's really sad that people have to basically be peer pressured into being decent but- yes. I don't know that people have ever voluntarily done the right thing. I mean, the people who are inclined to do the wrong thing, I don't know that they will ever sort of naturally find the light. I think there just have to be enough cultural and personal consequences for them to decide, I want to do this terrible thing, but I'm not going to. But
4: I won't. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I want to say this, but you know what? Better not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Better not. I'm going to have to Uh, keep it to myself. Exactly. And a lot of it is based on on money. Yes. Yes.
2: You know. So with everything you have going on between working with writing, teaching, acting, what do you want for yourself over, say, the next decade?
4: I actually would like to keep doing exactly what I'm doing right now. Oh, I love that. Isn't that nice? It is. I would love to. To, like, be where you want to be? Yes. I'm doing the things that I love. I want to keep teaching, keep working with writers. And hopefully keep on with the show or have other stuff come along. I mean, I mean, you know, to have a show come along like Gene Smart has that show. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? I do.
2: (laughs) That would be incredible. You just
4: think, oh, wow, this can happen Mm -hmm. like that.
2: And also my last question for you uh, as a New Yorker, a lifelong New Yorker, in fact. Yes. What is your favorite thing to do in New
4: York? Walk. Really? walk in the park walk in the neighborhood you know i love to sort of spy on people (laughs) you're just like look oh this is a great city for that this is a great city as long as you walk quickly in my neighborhood you can really spy on people Mm -hmm. you just don't want to slow down too much. oh ali sheedy you are
2: as ever a delight thank you so much for joining me on the Roxanne gay agenda
4: Thank you, Roxanne.
2: For everyone listening, Ali Sheedy's new show is Single Drunk Female. It's a freeform show streaming now on Hulu. You can keep up with me and this podcast on social media on Twitter at rgay and Instagram at roxannegay 74 Our email address is roxannegayagenda at gmail.com and we would love to hear from you. From Luminary, the Roxanne Gay Agenda is produced by Curtis Fox. Our researcher is Yesenia Moreno, and production support is provided by Caitlin Adams and Meg Pillow. I am Roxanne Gay, your favourite bad feminist. Thank you ever so much for listening.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast